Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We look to our God in the midst of whatever He sends. He is our hope, which is a good note for us as we turn for the last time to the book of Judges this morning. A few of you have asked me where we're going to be going next after Judges, and my plan is to look to the Gospels and go to the book of Mark next. But before we get there, a few things in between. I'm going to look the next few weeks at the shepherding responsibility of the church and its elders And I'll have a brief study leave and then Easter, so it will really be the end of April before we jump into Mark. But that's where we're headed. Today, though, we're in Judges, Judges 20 and 21. Now, prior to our missions conference, we looked at perhaps the darkest story in the Bible. As the sin in Israel reached such a breadth and a depth that the town of Gibeah was acting like Sodom, a Levite offered the one he had covenanted with to vicious assault, The tribe of Benjamin defended their wicked brothers rather than sought justice. So far, we've seen folly and wickedness on display, but today we will see the consequences of sin. We left off the story with Israel mustering 400,000 troops for battle and Benjamin mustering 26,000 troops, including a special ops unit of 700 left-handed slingers to oppose them. We want to pick up today in Judges chapter 20 with verse 18. I'm going to read about 10 verses here, and then we'll jump to chapter 21. But listen as we read God's word. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah, And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. And the people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah a second day and destroyed 18,000 of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. The next verses describe how Israel sets an ambush and defeats Benjamin, And almost all of the 26,000 troops of Benjamin die. Only 600 escape. 
But Israel then turns and nearly wipes out the entire tribe, killing every man, woman, and child of the towns of Benjamin. We're going to pick up now in chapter 21, verse 1. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they'd taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord, we will not give them any of our daughters for wives. And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded, Go, strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. And this is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin who are at the rock of Ramon and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time. And they gave them the the women they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead. But they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters, for the people of Israel had sworn, cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, go, lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And with their father, and when their fathers or brothers come and complain to us, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty." And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray. God, this is your word. Would you use even a story like this to show us our own sin and to draw us near to our Savior? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I've always felt bad for Sally and her brother. 
See, it's hard not to sympathize with them in the face of the antics of the cat in the hat. Sure, many of you have read The Cat in the Hat, and you remember that when the cat in the hat comes back, he decides to eat cake in the bathtub and promptly leaves a ring of pink scum on their bathtub. And Sally and her brother, they know what's coming to them if their mother comes home and sees it. The cat assures them that he can solve the problem, but every time he tries to solve the problem, he just makes it worse. The pink scum goes to the rug and then to the bed and then to the wall and then covers every square inch of their whole yard and all of the snow in it. Now my thought is it's not really surprising. You have to expect escalating consequences whenever cats are involved. (laughs) But poor Sally and her brother have no help as they watch as each decision makes things worse and worse. And that's really the main point of our passage this morning. Sin always comes with consequences. And trying to solve those consequences by doing what's right in our own eyes just makes things worse. Sin always comes with consequences. And trying to solve those consequences by doing what's right in our own eyes just makes things worse. As we come to the end of Judges this morning, I want us to see the fruit of Israel's sin, the root of Israel's sin, and the hope that remains despite Israel's sin. So let's start by looking at the fruit of Israel's sin. Fruit, of course, as we know, is the result that happens because of our decisions or actions. And the majority of our text this morning describes what happens as a result of Israel's sin and their foolish, unjust attempts to fix things. Throughout chapters 19 and 20, we saw sin stacking up in the lives of the Levite's concubine, the Levite, the town of Gibeah, the whole tribe of Benjamin. And the consequences of all that sin break out here as all Israel assembles for civil war. There is a very sad parallel between these verses we read today and the opening verses of the book of Judges. Judges chapter 1 verse 1 began with the words, Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites? And the Lord responds, Judah shall go up first. This was the opening note of faithfulness as Israel was promised victory over the wicked Canaanites and an inheritance in the land if they obeyed God. But here as we come to the last verses of this book, Israel inquires again of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against Benjamin? And the Lord responds, Judah shall go up. First. National unity, inquiring of the Lord, leadership and against an enemy. Everything that should have struck the Canaanites and led to blessing in Israel instead strikes Israel itself and leads to destruction in Israel. This is the sad reality that comes because of their sin. And the consequences do hit all of Israel here. On day one, the outnumbered Benjamites win the day and kill 22,000 men in Israel. The Lord tells them to fight again, but day two doesn't go much better as another 18,000 perish in battle. Israel sits weeping before the Lord, offering burnt offerings, and they ask again whether they should go up. And the Lord says explicitly, go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. On day three, Israel sets an ambush, pretending to flee like they did the first two days, drawing Benjamin's troops out, and giving the ambush an opportunity to sack the city of Gibeah, surround Benjamin, so that over 25,000 of them perish 
and only 600 men of the whole tribe escape and take refuge at the Rock of Ramon. Now, this series of events can raise questions in our minds. Why did the Lord tell Israel to go up and fight three times, but allow Israel to lose the first time before giving them victory? Was the Lord bringing consequences on all of Israel for their sin, reminding them that Benjamin wasn't the only one who had rebelled against his word? Is there some indication here that Israel's heart was wrong until that third day when they repented and truly depended upon the Lord with fasting and burnt offerings? Or or was it that God was using the first two days' defeats to make Benjamin overconfident which set up the success of the ambush on day three. Commentators have suggested all three of these solutions, and the text doesn't tell us for sure, but I suspect all three are true. That God does use this event to discipline all of Israel for their sinful disobedience, for the whole of Israel was involved in disobeying God's word. And in doing so, God confronts Israel's hearts and does bring them to depend upon him and seek his name even as he brings justice on Benjamin. And in his providence, the first two days' defeats do make Benjamin overconfident, leading to victory on day three. But there is one thing the text does tell us for sure, and it comes in verse 35 of chapter 20, where the text tells us for sure that these events are the Lord's work. Verse 35 explicitly says it was the Lord who defeated Benjamin in these events. However, Israel is not content to defeat Benjamin battle. They decide to entirely wipe out the tribe. After battle, they go town by town, killing every human and animal life, burning the towns to the ground. And in chapter 25, we find that they've even taken an oath that no one should give their daughter to marry a Benjamite, so that if a man from Benjamin does remain, he won't last beyond one generation. Now, it is highly doubtful that total annihilation was the justice that should have fallen on the entire tribe of Benjamin. But the bigger grief in my mind here is that this is exactly what Israel was supposed to do to the wicked Canaanites for their sin. It is what God had called them to do. And yet time and time again, God failed to do it. They disobeyed God. They left their wicked neighbors living right in their midst. And after years of failing to do what God had called them to do in judgment on their enemies, Israel now thoroughly and overvigilantly does to themselves. As we turn to chapter 21, Israel perhaps regrets their total wipeout policy and begins to grieve that one one tribe stands on the edge of extinction. But they've put themselves in a bind by being overly zealous and unjust in wiping out so much of the tribe and in swearing not to give their daughters as a wife. Here are 600 men from Benjamin still living, but no one can give a daughter to them to marry. So what can they do? As they're thinking over this quandary, they hit upon an idea. See, they'd actually sworn two oaths. And the other oath that they swore was that they, anyone who did not come up to join the battle before the Lord should die. And no one from Jabesh-Gilead had come. Now again, it is likely the fighting men who had not come who ought to be punished, but Israel decides to stretch justice again and go for a little bit of extra bloodshed in order to get some wives. 
for Benjamin. So they proceed to kill men, their wives, and their children, but leave unmarried women alive. There's nothing just about that decision, but it does yield their desired result. And they find 400 women for Benjamin. But there's still 200 short. Now, I realize this is a bit of extra textual conjecture here, but it seems to me that while they were bemoaning this situation, a few of them must have started watching 1950s musicals and been inspired by the lovesick boys from the Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and their famous sobbing women. And they strike whatever the inspiration on a loophole to their oath. Israel had promised not to give their daughters as wives, but that didn't keep Benjamin from kidnapping some wives. And so Benjamin tells Israel to snatch some dancers from the feast at Shiloh, and the story ends with everyone returning to their inheritance and Benjamin rebuilding their towns and rejoining the ranks of the 12 tribes. But don't be deceived. This is not a happily ever after ending. The book ends with complete moral chaos as every decision adds injustice upon injustice. Israel pursues justice against Benjamin but goes too far and wipes out the whole tribe. They punish Jabesh Gilead but do it unjustly, slaughtering the whole place. They regret their rash wife oath but make up for it by kidnapping 200 girls. All this is compounding fruit of Israel's sin. So why? Why all this moral chaos? Well, to answer that, we need to look at our second point this morning, and that is the root of Israel's sin. And the author ends the book by reminding us of the core problem and telling us how to interpret this whole episode. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And Dale Ralph Davis puts it well when he says, the problem is not even just with the decisions they made, but with the standard that governed each person in his own eyes. The problem is that declaration of independence, whether stated viciously or very politely, that says, I'll do what's best for me, thank you very much. That has been the root of sin ever since Adam and Eve looked at the tree in the garden and took it because it was delightful to their eyes. That standard drove each character in the story to sin and caused Israel to make this compounding mess every time they tried to fix it as it seemed best to them. And that, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, is the root of our sin as well. Because make no mistake about it, whether our decisions lead to hurtful evil or just a plain old foolishness, or even if we live what feels like reasonable morality and niceness, if we do it because it seems best to us or right to us, rather than out of submission to God and His Word, we stand in rebellion against God and have earned His just wrath. Because, see, sin is not a matter of first violating our conscience. Sin may feel wrong or sin may feel very right. But our feelings are neither reliable nor the standard. Proverbs 16.25 warns us, There is a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in a way to death. Sin is also not a matter of violating the standards of the day. 
We may be told by others that what we are doing is wrong or right, but the current opinions of the day are not our standard, nor are they reliable either. Sin is a matter of violating God's word, regardless of how it feels or how it seems or what others tell us. If God's word tells us it is wrong, it is wrong. If God's word tells us it is right, it is right, because he is God. He is our creator and he is the king and he is the only being who is perfect in justice and righteousness and wisdom and in truth. Yesterday, today, and forever. And just like for Israel, guilt and suffering will only compound when we face the consequences of our sin and try to solve them or cope with them as it seems best to us. We may try to solve or cope with our sin by lying to cover up what we've done. We may try to solve it by attempting to fix it, by working harder or doing better. We may try to cope with it by turning to alcohol or pornography or money or relationships or all that the world has to offer us. But none of them will work because they are all based on the same standard, the same root decision to do what seems best in our eyes instead of submitting to the Word of God and the will of God and the Son of God for our salvation. And again, we have to realize that if we are committed to doing what is right in our own eyes and each individual is free to make that decision, then Christianity and God's Word will be reduced either to optional therapy for those it seems most helpful towards or it will be completely uncredible to our eyes. We can only move forward if we submit to the authority of the Word of God. And so my prayer for us is that we will leave judges with one thing crystal clear. The root cause of sin and suffering in judges and the root cause of your sin and my sin is the same. The decision to do what is right in our own eyes based on my desires or on the assumptions of the culture around me rather than what I, on what God's Word tells us is right. And since none of us is above that temptation, since the temptation to do what seems best to me or seems best given our current culture will tug at us day by day, we must bathe ourselves in God's Word and reaffirm our commitment to His Word, trusting in the Lord with all our heart and not leaning on our own understanding if we have any hope of walking in faithfulness to Him. Well, this is the fruit of Israel's sin. It is the root of Israel's sin and ours. But while these chapters showcase the compounding consequences of sin, I want us to finally see that Judges does not end without hope. Now, there are a few books in the Bible that leave us with such a vivid picture of the consequences of sin and the ease with which we can begin to think like the culture around us and our desperate need for help that goes far beyond what any of these judges can provide. And make no mistake about it, apart from Christ, every one of our hearts is right at home in the book of Judges, whether in violent evil or in attempts at righteousness that are self-serving or culturally attuned rather than biblical and godly. And so there are few books in the Bible that leave us with a greater longing and in greater desperation for someone who could rescue us from this mess of sin. You know, when the cat in the hat comes back, 
They faced escalating consequences to the point at the end where it seemed like there was no hope. Until the cat pulled out little cat Z, who had the magical voom under his hat. And little cat Z set everything right by releasing the voom. As we come to the end of Judges, though, there's no little cat Z. There's no magical zoom here that's going to set things right. But there is great hope. And we get some hints of it in our text this morning. The first hint comes in chapter 20 when Israel inquires of the Lord three times. And do you notice what happens each time? The Lord answers. And just consider the significance of that fact for a minute. Israel has rejected God in favor of idols. He has failed to conquer the land as God commanded. Has disobeyed God's word. And yet in the face of all of that, The Ark of the Covenant of God was with them. A high priest was there to represent them before the Lord. And God heard their prayers and answered their prayers. Consequences for sin? Absolutely. But God had not abandoned His people. His presence was there. His Word was available. His promises had not come to an end. And where God's Word is found, where God's promises and God's presence are found, there there is hope. Consider also the surprising fact that after all we've seen in Judges, Israel still exists. Mesopotamians, Moabites, Midianites, Ammonites, and Philistines for hundreds of years have conquered, ruled, and overrun Israel. And Israel has multiple times torn it itself from within. And yet, we end the book of Judges with the twelve tribes of Israel still there, returning and dwelling in their inheritance. How is that possible? As Dale Ralph Davis puts it, the book of Judges ends with a miracle. How, after chapters 19 to 21, how, after chapters 1 through 21, can you account for the fact that Israel still exists living in, inher- in their inheritance? It can only be because Yahweh wished to dwell in the midst of his people in spite of its sin. It can only be because Yahweh's grace is far more tenacious than His people's depravity. It can only be because Yahweh insists on still holding them fast, even in their sinfulness and stupidity. One thinks of Paul's words in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. Faithful to what? To His name? to His promises, and to His people. And if God is still faithful to His name and to His promises, we expect that here at the end of Judges, a seed of Eve who will crush the serpent's head will still come. A descendant of Abraham who will bring blessing to the nations will still arrive. A prophet like Moses, a king like David, who will sit on his throne and arrive to turn our hearts back to the Lord, to write His law within us, to lead us in righteousness, to bring us into His presence forevermore, is still on His way. Oh yes, Judges ends with a comprehensive indictment of sin, but Judges is not the end of the story. And at the end of Judges, we still see God answering the cries of His people and His promises still alive. As we look ahead to Jesus, in whom all of these promises will be fulfilled. Of course, from our vantage point in history, this Jesus, 
The King of Israel has come. And so the question for each one of us at the end of Judges is this, do you see your need for Jesus, the King of Israel? And if so, have you looked to Him in faith? Because in Him we find forgiveness of sins. In Him we can be reconciled to God. In Him we can be remade in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And judges should make us long for that hope and rejoice in that hope with an ever greater urgency and an ever greater joy. He is the one that we need. Let me end with one final encouragement as we leave this book. Put yourselves for a minute in the shoes of a godly Israelite in the days of the judges. Maybe it was the days of Gideon where, where Israel is decimated by enemies, overrun, robbed, helpless, all because of Israel's sin. Maybe it's in the days of Samson when most of Israel was content to be like the Philistines, under the Philistines, and saw nothing wrong with this scenario, and moral standards were spiraling downhill. Or maybe it's in the days of Judges 17 to 21 when everyone did what was right in their own eyes and it seemed like evil was unrestrained all around you. What could you do as an individual Israelite in the face of such unrestrained evil? Maybe some of you feel that way even now. Austin Roos is a Catholic believer who has been the president of the Center for Family and human rights for 22 years. The goal of CFAM is to defend life and family and international policy, and they've spent the last 20 years successfully keeping abortion from being listed or recognized by the UN as a human right. And Roos just published a book entitled Under Siege, No Finer Time to be Catholic. Now, as a Catholic, Roos and I have significant theological differences but we agree on his central point. Because Roos argues that now is not a time for fear or for distraction or for despair, but a time for faithfulness. For our calling is not to turn back the tide of evil ourselves. None of us need look at the tide of wickedness around us and think it is our job to defeat that. That is what Christ has done. Rather, our calling is to fight faithfully in whatever little skirmish God has put us in. To honor God and to be a blessing wherever God has placed us. And as such, there is no finer time than now to be a follower of Jesus. Because surrounded by darkness, every act of faithfulness shines all the brighter for the glory of God. And each of us has the ability to be a blessing to those right around us where God has placed us. Isn't that, after all, what Othniel and Barak and Gideon found? That despite overwhelming odds, faithfully obeying God right where he had put them, doing just what he had called them to do, in his strength brought glory to God and blessing to those around him. So that is our calling. To put our faith firmly in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, in the face of wickedness, knowing His strength to obey Him. Knowing that faithfulness is never in vain, but is always an act to give testimony to the truth and to the glory of God and to the character of God right where He has put us. So may that be our resolve as we wait for the day when God's name and God's promises are fully vindicated 
and our hope becomes sight, and we enter his presence forevermore. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for this book of Judges, which has held before us the consequences of living based on what seems right to us and the consequences of living based on the way our culture tells us to live. And yet, Father, this is no condemnation of people out there. It highlights our own sin and our own temptations right here. And so, Father, I pray that this book would give us a greater urgency and a greater desire and a greater sense of our need for Jesus. And I pray that as we run to Jesus and put our faith fully in him and his death and resurrection on our behalf, Father, would we stand on your promises and would we seek to act faithfully in obedience to you wherever you've placed us. And as we wait until the day when you will return and the victory will be finally won, would we be faithful to you right where you've put us for the glory of your name. And I pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit. Thank you.